Then Jesus asked, were not ten made clean? So where are the other nine? Did none of them return to give glory to God except this foreigner? Amen. I want to start this morning by bringing into our mind's eye the statue that sat for many years on the front steps of the American Museum of Natural History. The one that was finally removed this past January. We all remember it, I'm sure. The swashbuckling white hero president, Teddy Roosevelt, astride his horse with an African-American man and a Native American man following along subserviently near the horse's rear end. The artist used a triangular composition, placing the white man firmly at the top of a pyramid and the African and Native American ones not merely at the bottom, but toward the back. Placing this sculpture in front of an art museum would be bad enough. But putting it in front of the Natural History Museum connected it with science, tacitly saying that it represented objective, not subjective, reality. It's a perfect example of how artificially constructed racial hierarchies are thoroughly baked into European and American ways of thinking. So when and how did these false racial constructs come into being? One of the earliest iterations was the Doctrine of Discovery, a series of papal bulls written in the 1400s. Its tenets are still embedded in our legal systems to this day. Here is a definition from the Cornell Law School Legal Institute. The Doctrine of Discovery refers to a principle in public international law under which when a nation discovers land, it directly acquires rights on that land. This doctrine arose when the European nations discovered non-European lands and therefore acquired special rights. This principle disregards the fact that the land oftentimes is already inhabited by another nation. In fact, this doctrine was used in order to legitimize the colonization of lands outside of Europe. More broadly, this doctrine can be described as an international law doctrine, giving authorization to explorers to claim said inhabited land in the name of their sovereign when the land was not populated by Christians. We all grew up hearing in our American history classes 
that Columbus discovered America, that European explorers discovered the new world. But did we ever, when we were kids, think about how such linguistic constructions entirely erase the peoples who had lived here for millennia before Europeans arrived? The peoples who still live here. What was actually passed down to us by those stories was the conviction that Christians have the right to take away land and possessions and even children of non-Christians, simply because we are Christians. The original papal bulls may not have been part of the official catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, but the license to seize which they authorized was deeply embedded within the legal systems of the United States and Canada, as well as the governance structures of our churches. The Episcopal Church has officially apologized for our use of them to justify how we treated Native Americans. Pope Francis did so also on behalf of the Roman Church earlier this year in Canada. But apologies are not nearly enough. That's why we've invited Charlie Huffman of the Kaw Nation to speak with us today on the eve of Indigenous Peoples Day. So I hope you will join us later in our forum when we talk about the doctrine of discovery and how it still shapes our lives and the lives of indigenous people all over the world. So what you might be asking, does this have to do with the gospel this morning? In one of those, to me, miracle of the lectionary moments, it seems, in my view, that we would be hard pressed to find a gospel passage that more clearly illustrates how Christian proclamations like the doctrine of discovery are entirely out of step with the life and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. Today we hear the story in which Jesus firmly asserts the humanity of a person his own people would have discarded as other a story in which that very person who shows, it is that very person who shows what it means to be in right relationship with God. Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus and the disciples were on their way to Jerusalem from Galilee, and they had a choice of how to go, either through Samaria, which was the short way, or the longer way around. Jesus chose to go through Samaria, even though the Samaritans were their most bitter enemies. Jesus encountered the ten men with leprosy in a location that was something of an in-between space, neither fully Judean nor fully Samaritan. So Luke immediately signals to us, before these men even speak, that they are literally on the margins. Their marginalization is then further confirmed by their leprosy, 
a disease that had no cure at the time. Persons who contracted it were cast out of their families and forced to live together in quarantine, something that we all know a lot about these days. Luke, by the way, never refers to these men as the 10 lepers. The original Greek does not reduce them to their affliction the way our translation does. Luke wrote, the 10 men who had leprosy. Yet another indication in the story that Luke saw them as individuals with agency. Commentators disagree on whether these men were a tight-knit group that bonded together by their shared illness. It could be that it broke down the barriers between them. They did address Jesus as a group. His response to them, though, indicates that there remains some differentiation. Jesus says, go and show yourself to the priests, plural, indicating that the Judean men would have gone to their priest and the Samaritan man would have gone to his priest. Given how the story ends, that it's only the Samaritan who returns to thank Jesus for the healing, I come down on the side of those who say that there was still a tribal differentiation even within that group. For me, the very differentiation is what makes Luke's point. In a marginal place, among a group of people who have been marginalized by illness, the one who is even further marginalized is the only one who comes back to say thank you. The only one who shows us what it looks like to be a human deeping, seeking a deeper connection and conversation with God. It's clear that one overarching theme in this passage is healing tribalism. The person's Luke's audience would least have expected, the one who is triply other, is the one who praises God most fully. And as we know, Luke's gospel abounds with stories that push back against tribalism, and he often uses Samaritans as examples, precisely because those groups were such bitter enemies. John's gospel, as we remember, does it too. Remember Fotini, the woman at the well, is a Samaritan, and she's also the person with whom Jesus has the longest single conversation recorded in any of the Gospels. So Luke is reminding us that we are all one, that God does not see our tribes as separate, that God instead seeks to topple the fortresses that we erect to protect ourselves from each other's shadows, the ones we build precisely because we know our own shadow selves all too well. Deep down, we recognize what we might be capable of, and so we project it onto others. And then we cower 
in fear behind the very walls that we built, claiming, ah, it's all about them. That's why the spirit moves in the marginal spaces, between and betwixt, breaking down those boundaries that we try so hard to make. She seeks to draw us deeper and deeper into beloved community, inviting us into the oneness of creation. But here's the twist. God also sees us as individuals, and God knows us through and through and loves us as we are, at our best and at our worst. So what better way for God to show us how to get out of our own heads than by revealing God's self in those we claim are our worst enemies, the ones onto whom we project our deepest fears. God intentionally uses those very individuals to invite us deeper into communion. Sometimes God uses a Samaritan woman at a well. Sometimes God uses a man with leprosy. Sometimes God uses our indigenous sisters and brothers speaking out and asking us to right the wrongs our ancestors and we ourselves have done to them. So the proper response to God's grace and abundance is not what the doctrine of discovery would have you think. It's not, awesome, I'm special and different. I can take whatever I want. <laughs> That's not it, folks. The Samaritan man in this story responds to God's abundant healing with gratitude. Because of this, he is given even more than physical healing. God responds to his gratitude by inviting this man into an even wider and deeper level of wholeness. Their conversation continues. What a gift he receives when he opens himself up even further to God's love. Your faith, Jesus tells him, has made you well. What new wholeness might we find as we enter more deeply into reconciliation and repair work, surely there will be treasures new and old. May we open our eyes to see and our ears to hear. May we have the patience to listen and the courage to rend our hearts. May we make the choice to begin a process of repair that has been a very long time coming. And may we learn through our work to enter deeper into the blessing of communion with all people and with all of creation. Amen.